Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, we'll take a deep dive into the new U.S. bank rules issued by regulators and expected to take effect next January after a comment period ending in late November. The proposed rules follow the failures earlier this year of three regional banks that shook the U.S. banking system to its core and raised concerns about the soundness and stability of the bank sector. The Federal Reserve is proposing that U.S. banks raise more long-term debt as part of the latest rules package. In a new report, bank analyst Dick Beauvais says the new rules will have ripple effects beyond the banking system and will negatively impact the economy. Banks will shrink, he says, with many banks already reducing staff and eliminating business lines. Matt Van Alstyne will weigh in on the US government balance sheet with a US deficit forecast to grow sharply as 30% of US treasuries mature in 2024 and face much higher refinancing costs. We look at the Odeon Capital Group money supply. We look at how the US Fed may move next on interest rates and we look also at Russia and China and what happened at the G20 summit in India. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstyne, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 86. On August 29, 2023, that's in the past weeks, the three major banking regulatory entities issued a 1,087-page set of new rules and regulations for the banking industry. We're going to talk about that uh, with you, Dick and Matt, and you have a report out on all of this. Just spell out your thoughts, ideas, and where this could all be going so badly wrong. So these rules are open for comment until the end of November. They are expected to take effect uh, in January coming and banks will be required to have met 25% of the rules by 2025 and all of them by 2028. So Dick, I'm just going to quote from the report. You cherry picked some comments. I'll read that and then we'll lead into that. Um, The rationale for the new rules, according to you, was stated by Michael Hugh, the acting controller of the currency. And he said, quoting from him, the financial system today is substantially more protected from financial instability than before the 08 financial crisis. 
However, despite this progress, there is a gap with regards to large regional banks which have grown in size and complexity and are at risk of becoming the new too big to fail firms. And he goes on and on, and we can get into more of that. But anyway, I'm going to quote from what you've said on the impact, and you can pick it up from there. And I'm sure Matt wants to weigh in on this. You say the proposed banking rules will have impacts well beyond the banking system. They will impact the economy negatively, but they will lower the government's exposure to financial risk. Well, that's, that last point is the most important point here, which is that uh, the United States government, the president and the secretary of the treasury uh, last March, you know, made statements about protecting all of the deposits in the banking industry. And supposedly the FDIC, you know, is supposed to protect all of the insured uh, money in the banking system. The problem is they can't conceivably do it. You know, there's, they can't even come remotely close to doing it. In other words, if you take a look at the amount of money that the FDIC has set aside against insured deposits, that's deposits that get the FDIC insurance, that's 1.1% of the total. If you take a look at what the president and the Treasury Secretary said, which is insuring all the deposits in all of the banks, the FDIC has got maybe 1.75%, less than 1% of the money in their fund to do that. So it's very clear that they can't do it. It's an impossibility because if they can't do it and they go to Congress and they ask Congress to do it, the Congress has got to come up with trillions of dollars to do that, which the Congress can't do. The Federal Reserve can't print trillions of dollars to protect those deposits. So the government has a problem. The problem is how do we get out of this, you know, huge obligation which we cannot conceivably mix, meet, not mix, we cannot conceivably meet. And the solution to the problem is to, to make the bank smaller and to reduce the portion of the assets in the bank or the liabilities actually in the bank that we're willing to support. So this new 1,087-page document, you know, moves the government aggressively along in that position. But, you know, if we just stay on the government for one more minute, you know, this is another indication that the debt of the United States is dramatically higher than anyone ever thought it could be. The obligations that the United States have promised to back simply cannot be backed. And at some point, and I know Matt has talked about this often, about what the, what the total off-balance sheet debt is of the United States government, at some point, this, this, this has got to come to roost. Walk us through these solutions to talking about, Dick, and, and ultimately, like who, who is benefiting? Because I've read your latest report on this um, from Odeon, and I mean, I'm just wondering, I guess for the ordinary retail customer, Maybe they could care less. They're probably protected, but for small business and institutional customers, I would think they're going to feel the the brunt of this. But who who actually benefits with the solutions and what these regulators are proposing? Non-banks are the beneficiaries. But before we get there, the question is, what is it doing to the banks? All right, what are they asking the banks to do? The first thing is that the government wants to have the banks 
shift the non-insured deposits into long-term loans to the banks. So what they're telling the banks is you've got to increase by 70 billion. Other people have estimated 75 to 100 billion, but the government estimates 70 billion. You've got to go out into the market and borrow 70 billion dollars. The 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 enormity of that sum is, is is such that the banks really can't do it. Uh, so what what the banks are going to do if they can't raise seventy billion dollars? They're going to take a look at these rules and figure out how they can avoid them. And how do they avoid them? Well, banks make loans on mortgages. And uh, well, let me step back. There, there is a risk weighting system that the government uses in looking at banks. In other words, the government takes a look at uh, low risk investments, buying treasuries, putting money at the Federal Reserve, and they say, you don't have to have any capital against that. They take a look at the high risk investments that a bank makes, private equity uh, investments, or even making a home mortgage, which has a loan to value ratio of uh, 80 or 95%. That's a high-risk investment that the banks, you know, have to put more capital against. Commercial loans, which are not backed by some piece of property. In other words, you're lending money to a company, and instead of having a plant or, you know, inventory or something behind it, you're lending money against the cash flows that you expect that company to generate. In other words, if it's a, it's a service company, they're not going to have a lot of assets. So you're lending them money against how much profits you think they're going to make. These are all ranked by the government in level of terms of risk. All right. In other words, if, if again, I, I'm sorry for repeating, if it's a treasury, you need virtually no capital against it. If it's a company involved in the restaurant business that, you know, is got a good cash flow, that's a very high risk loan, and the government wants a high amount of capital against it. If it's a trade on commodities, which is an asset of the bank, the government actually wants more money in terms of the capital put against it than you actually have in the trade. They got rules that would require 150% capital against you know trading certain commodities. So, all right, you got this risk system on one side, got this government on the other side saying, we want you to put in more capital. The banks are saying, wait a minute, I don't have to put in more capital. What I can do is get rid of all these high-risk loans. I can get rid of all of the equity investments we've I've made. I can get rid of all this stuff, which gives me a high risk weighting, because if I can lower that risk weighting, I don't have to come up with all the money. I don't have to come up with the $70 billion that the banks are asking for. So what you're now creating is a situation where banks are going to start to shrink. And there happens to be, coincidentally, uh, this week, this major bank conference in New York City, which lasts three days. And these bankers are getting up and saying, you know, what they think of what the government is doing. Uh, Jamie Dimon, who is the uh, JP Morgan, if you will, uh, CEO, has said that this is you know, going to make uh, non-banks dance in the streets because of the business that they're going to get. He's also said that the government is not thinking clearly in terms of what they're doing here. Uh, he's not thinking clearly. The government has got a problem they got to solve. All right. 
the people at Truist Financial, which is the old SunTrust Bank and BB&T, they're going to fire something uh, like a thousand people to shrink and get out of businesses they don't want to be in. Regions Financial, they made the decision to get rid of whole product lines. Goldman Sachs, they're getting rid of whole product lines. Uh, Citizens Financial, which is a Northeastern bank, you know, they've, they've indicated that they're going to shrink. Key Corp, which is a central bank uh, in the United States, headquartered in Cleveland, they're going to reduce the size of their assets. They're going to downgrade the lending that they're doing to doctors and nurses. So, you know, right through the banking industry, they're looking at this risk table. And as they look at this risk table, they say, if we can get rid of A, B, C, D, E in this risk table, we don't have to raise $70 billion. So this, this, these regulations are going to create an enormous amount of shifts and changes within the banking industry itself. Right? Then in terms of the question you ask, who benefits, private equity companies are out there taking a look at all the stuff that these banks you know, might sell. And they're raising money saying that we can grab off, you know, this particular business that we really like, or we can get involved in this private equity situation that we really like. So, so they, they are going to buy a lot of this stuff and they benefit from it. The, the non-bank financial companies, you know, companies that make loans on houses, that make loans on cars, that make loans, you know, on personal, you know, personal, if you will, uh, drawdowns. They're going to increase their share of market pretty dramatically. Already, these non-bank companies are the biggest issuers of mortgages in the United States, bigger than the banks. And that, that percentage is going to grow. You're going to see uh, deals on car loans where the car loan companies uh, you know, are going to have to either lend the money to the buyer of the car themselves or they're going to have to go to some non-bank company because the banks aren't going to, you know, car loans are high-risk loans, particularly if it's a, an eight-year loan on a depreciating asset, right? So th th there, there are a number of, of, of buyers, just, just hedge funds, you know, that might want to take a shot at certain equity positions that the banks own. They, they are potential buyers. The, the buyers are, are, are presumably throughout the spectrum. From commercial companies right down to any type of uh, hedge fund it, with everybody in between taking a shot at it. But what we're talking about is a major turnover of financial assets in the United States, which are going to have you know significant impacts on the U.S. economy also. I, I have two questions, Dick. The first one's a simple one. When would these proposed banking rules be put in place if if they're accepted? And what, what is the odds that they're changed or rejected three agencies put out this report and they they are giving until november 30th for all of the people who don't agree with these rules to to make their comments and they're getting a raft of that everyone from bank of new york uh, mellon to uh, as i said a number of banks you know a, a moment you know a moment ago they're they're sending in their comments saying why this is no good right all right on january uh you know 2024 the uh, final rules will be set in place. And again, this is coming within the next three or four months, basically. Yeah. yeah. Now, so, now, so my next question is, if you were to try to steel man the, the reason behind their, you know, what is the government's argument on this? Because, you know, I, I hear you, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to channel my inner, you know, Elizabeth Warren, 
but it's, <laughs> it sounds like what you're, you know, all, uh, oh dear, the banks, these rich bankers are shrieking and, and this, this is really going to be really bad for them, which, you know, maybe, maybe that's good for economic stability. Maybe that's good for the government. Maybe that's good for the treasury markets. What, what is the, the, the best case scenario if you're, you're supportive of these rules? What, what is the reason behind it and why would you be supportive of them? I'll give you the stated reason, and then I'll give you what I think is the real reason. The stated reason is the banking system almost was in collapse in March of this year, and the government really didn't have the money to bail them out. It had to look, it had to go to the Treasury, and this is because of the Dodd-Frank Act. In the old days, they could just do it. But under the Dodd-Frank Act, they had to go to the Secretary of the Treasury, and he had to go to the Financial Stability Oversight Committee to get the approval, you know, to bail out those banks. And therefore, what the stated reason is, is we're going to make the banks safer. And the way we're going to make the banks safer is by forcing them to take loans in the bank as opposed to deposits in the bank, we don't have to guarantee the loans. We have to guarantee the deposits. So if we can get them to shift from deposits to loans, we we reduce the obligation of the U.S. government. The unstated reason, which, you know, if you take a look at the third quote in the report that I put out, the one that comes from the uh, uh, FDIC, because those are the guys who got to come up with the money if some bank goes under, right? What you can see is they're intimating a, a, a reality. We don't have the money. There's no, don't, there's no way in hell that we have the money to support, you know, the banking system. It just is not there, and there's no way to get it there because we're talking about an, an industry which has twenty-one trillion dollars in financial assets on a twenty-three trillion dollar base, and we're supposed to, we're supposed to guarantee, you know, twenty-one trillion dollars. We can't do it. It's an absolute impossibility. So what is the solution? This thing has gotten way out of control, and we got to get it back in control. And the way we're going to get it in control is, number one, we're going to force the banks to shrink. And number two, we're going to force you know the, the money in the bank to go from stuff that we're insuring, and I'm repeating, obviously, but we're going to force the money to go away from what we insure, deposits, and put it into long-term debt. And we don't care if all the long-term debt holders lose all the money that they've invested because we're not supporting that. So it, the government is doing this because they, they can't do what they promised to do. And they became very aware of that in March when three banks went under and they didn't have enough money to do any part of what they said they were going to do. They could not guarantee Silicon Valley Bank. They could not guarantee uh, you know, the uh, Signature Bank or First Republic, and therefore they made sweetheart deals to sell Signature Bank and First Republic, and they 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 came up with a, a special treasury benefit to allow them to, to take care of Silicon Valley. But, you know, if another two or three of them of banks of this size went under, you know, game over. And I'm sorry if I'm just ignorant on this, but are these rules coming from the Federal Reserve, the supposed independent fourth branch of government, or are they coming from the Treasury, or is this a conglomeration? Like, how, how is this fleshed out, and is this part of an overall Biden strategy to to shore up the U.S. government, or is it is it a backdoor way of kind of harming the economy? I mean, I, it just a lot of this just doesn't make sense. 
to me. There are three key bank regulatory agencies in the United States. There is the Federal Reserve. There is the Office of the Controller of the Currency, which was created in 1861, is a Department of the United States Treasury. There is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. All three, in, in a sense, according to the Dodd-Frank Act, have to report to something called the Federal Stability Oversight Commission. I think FSOC, I think that's what it stands for. All right. In addition to that, there's the National Credit Union Association. Well, anyway, those, those four entities came up with these rules. And believe me, I don't think the Biden administration even knew what they were doing. All right. I don't think they were aware of what the problem is. And I don't think they were. It's these are the people who've got to come up with the money. They got to come up with the solution. And, you know, this is their solution. And I would be shocked if they actually went to anybody and, and asked them about it beyond the Treasury Secretary, because she's part of the whole of the whole regulatory situation. You know, it, it's it's a valid concern. It sounds like a valid concern. What would your ideal solution be if if you are sitting in these regulator seats because i've said this a lot and maybe it's just it's just a, a shorthand way of saying we don't have leadership but like to me this seems like we have a structural problem with between the the leaders who've set up this system and then the operators within the system and then the regulators who are trying to you know control the system and it's just a lack of leadership and a lack of strategic vision of what our banking system would look like. Because it sounds to me like what you're saying is these regulators who are tasked with doing a job with a particular budget are looking at their budget and saying, oh my goodness, we can't regulate the banking system as it is with our current assets. And so they're fixing the problem themselves by changing the rules on the banks rather than having it be part of some sort of strategic vision for the country of what our financial system should be. Yeah, well, that's definitely correct. I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that that's correct. There is no likelihood that you would get any bill through Congress uh, or you would get any proposal from the president concerning this issue because it's too hot an issue, number one. Number two, the risks of making the wrong decisions here are too great, similar to what we talked about in terms of Fannie and Faye. Freddie in the past, you know, if they don't do it right, they're going to blow it and they're going to blow it in a fashion which is going to put us in a direct depression and therefore they're not about no politician is about to step up with a solution for this problem. They're just not going to do it. And if anybody has got the guts to do it, no Congress, no president is going to uh, go go forward with what they suggest because the rules have got to be draconian. But you've got the regulators. They're sitting here with this problem. If we have three or four more banks go under the way the three went under, you know, in March, they just don't have the money just don't have the money. So they've got to do something. Now, in terms of what I would do, it, I would do exactly what they're doing. You know, in other words, I would say, hey, I got a risk here. I can't pay for this risk. If I'm ever hit with trying to pay for this risk, I'm, I'm in deep trouble. I'm out of business. The country's out of business. I got to get rid of this risk. And I don't care what's going to happen to the economy. I'm going to get rid of this risk. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're getting rid of this risk to the degree possible. And obviously, it's going to take decades for them to really get rid of the risk. But this, this is a starter in the right direction. So, Dick, you're in support of these rules by and large, you're saying? Yes. Yes. And it's not because I, I don't understand the risks related to these rules, which we can talk about in a little while. It's because we have no choice. We've made promises that we simply can't keep. 
And if we're ever called upon to keep those promises, we're in trouble because the money doesn't exist. I, I, I hear you and I, I do agree with you. I, I just feel like, and this is where I'm, I, maybe I'm getting foggy or depressed over it, but like we have on the totally other side of the, the government's balance sheet, just the, you know, the fiscal operations where, you know, we're running a $2 trillion deficit this year and it's forecast to grow. We have 31% of US treasuries maturing in 2024 that they're going to be refinanced at an extremely higher interest rate. And it seems like we're in a in a feedback loop where the left hand's seeing its own problems, which is, you know, the banking industry regulators are trying to fix the banking industry. But what it's going to do is exasperate the problem on the fiscal side for the for the government deficits and for the social security fund and for, you know, everything that keeps the, the country running. And so it, it feels like the left hand's not coordinating with the right hand to have a, a good way out of this disastrous problem. Well, actually, um, doesn't cost the government a cent. If, if, they put, if they put these rules into effect, number one, it costs the government nothing, right? It Isn't it going to harm borrowers? Isn't it going to harm small businesses? Isn't it going to harm yeah, yeah, a I bad would. banking system? Yes, or a, yeah. weak, a weak, unlevered banking, less levered banking system where they're required to own treasuries and instead of investing in... Um, it's going to make the banking system stronger. It'll make the banking system stronger, but it won't make the economic... Well, what do you think the banks are going to buy? They're going to buy treasuries. Exactly. They're not going to be investing in more remunerative opportunities that, that might enhance productivity and enhance growth of the United States GDP. Well, that's right. That's the cost. You know, if there are any benefits to this, what is being done, it's the banking system will, in fact, be safer. The government will have more money to invest in treasuries to cover the deficit. The liquidity of the banks will increase dramatically. The cost to the banking, you know, to the American public, the, the taxpayer will be meaningfully reduced. So those are the benefits that you get from this. But in fixing that system, all the other things you said are correct. Interest rates are going to go way up. The risks uh, in, in lending is going to be much greater. The, the impact of a recession is going to be much deeper. All that stuff is going to happen too. But, you know, we put ourselves in a position where we just can't stop borrowing and spending. You know, as Jimmy Diamond said yesterday, the Americans are spending like drunken sailors. The drunken sailors are, uh, would like that comment. But the point is, he's saying that, you know, they got to stop spending. The theory behind the drunken sailor comment is they just got paid because they came into shore with lots of money from the from the catch. And they got their payment. And they went and spent it all. We're spending 30 or 40% more than we have almost every day like the re the receipts versus the outlays of the US government which you know are published monthly are insane and we're 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 supposedly in a growing gdp economy and yet our deficits are rising faster than our gdp is growing and and it's accelerating and and, and everything you're saying sounds like it's going to accelerate even more it just seems like this this can't continue yeah so what do you do about it i well That's i the I, issue. I, I've been saying for a long time, I wish we had leaders, but it seems like we need to either reduce government spending or increase government revenues. And if though, neither of those things are going to happen, then the Fed's going to have to do QE and, and yield curve control to, to make it so that we don't have runaway inflation. It might, it might contribute to runaway inflation, but, but at least on, on paper, it'll look like we're, we're stable, kind of like Japan has done for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, well, I mean, that probability of what you're suggesting is high. In other words, no one has got the guts to step up and do anything about it, right? 
you know, whether we get good leaders or bad leaders, no one's got the guts to say, okay, we're going to increase the revenue of the government and we're going to cut government spending. Just, I mean, it's a problem because you can't get elected if you tell the truth. Like if someone well, were to run on, we're, we're running, we're, we're accelerating towards a cliff. We are all Thelma and Louise, you know, driving, right. driving right. down the road and you should elect me because I'm going to be applying the brakes. And, you know, I, I, I heard Trump yesterday was talking about even more enhanced tax cuts, which, you know, as a person sounds great. But when you look at this overall problem and, and then the overall, you know, I'm not even mentioning social security, which is about to run dry, but like, it seems like that's going to just accelerate, you know, you're adding fuel to the fire, not water to the fire. Well, that's right. No politician is going to do anything about it. You know, this is one tiny step made by one group of people who see the train coming at them and are trying to stop it. Right from their little piece of chisel, yeah, they're piece. they're putting a coin on the train track. Right, but you said last week, Dick, and and picking up on what Matt said, you see a severe, deep debt fueled recession by the end of next year. I mean, there is this runaway spending. Now we're talking about a potential government shutdown. They just can't control that spending. What Jamie Dimon was also saying, topping his concerns, is central banks worldwide scaling back liquidity programs via quantitative tightening the ukraine war and governments around the world bending like drunken sailors um i mean your thoughts about this severe recession next year this all sets it in stark relief when you start presenting the numbers here and what matt was saying about uh, they just can't get this spending reined in it, it, it's a pretty dismal situation well, it's, it's very frightening because basically we solved th this type of problem for the last 50 60 years by printing money and increasing you know increasing debt and printing money that was our solution and you know if we have the ability to do that again you know we'll get out of it um you know but if we're looking for the politicians to step up and say okay you've got to have more revenue you've got to reduce spending they're not going to do it. what did this guy the, the the quarterback of the cleveland browns uh, what did he am i all right he just got a contract for 275 million dollars i think that's the cincinnati Bengals. you might be at by a few dollars but it's pretty really close joe burrow i think right yeah burrows burrows yeah that's the guy I mean, you know, how can you do this, right? How can you let this guy get paid? Well, you can't. That's that's unfair. Well, I mean, you but, 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 but isn't that the free enterprise system at work, Dick? What, what about Aaron Rodgers? And, and, he's, and, he's, and he's a union member. I mean, this is a negotiated between a labor force. and a, I mean, it's, yeah. I don't think you can compare one guy's salary to the problems of the government. Which, no, what I'm saying is that this is this is runaway uh, this is runaway inflation, and it's not free enterprise because the the uh, National Football League is not a free enterprise entity. It has been given special benefits by the U.S. government. What? To, what special benefits to run the football industry? Dick, you may be the expert on this, but wasn't that a negotiated contract? What about Aaron Rodgers last night? He's making multiple millions, and he walks yeah, off. I, I, uh, with I don't care. Who, who's ever making hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars? In Jamie Diamond. Jamie Diamond's it, making a lot. He's, he's not making hundreds. He's not making anywhere near what the quarterbacks make. Just on the banking, and we can move on from that. You said the banks uh, have been forced to raise more long-term debt. Just to give the the numbers to our listeners, seventy billion dollars to bring the industry levels to two hundred and fifty billion dollars. Jamie Dimon, um, just talking about that a moment ago, said 
his bank would have to hold 30% more capital than his European bank counterparts. So kind of summing up, the banking industry is going to shrink. There's going to be mass layoffs, right, at regional banks. But that doesn't mean uh, employment and financial services will decline because a lot of those employees will get jobs in the non-banking financial sector. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I don't think, well, I mean, Truist yesterday announced mass layoffs, right? And that's that's the fifth or sixth largest bank in the United States. Um, but the point is that uh, the functions are not going away. It's just that the functions aren't going to be in the banking industry. They're going to go to the non-banks. And the non-banks are going to need the people who know how to run those functions. So I'm not sure it's going to have a huge impact on the, on the labor market. Um, I just think it's going to have a positive impact on you know the cost of running the banks. But again, the banks will be the banks will be in a position where their revenue sources are going to be depleted. So you know because the high risk areas of lending money get a much better return than putting money at, at the Federal Reserve. So so the the net result is the banks are not going to see any big increase in earnings as a result of this. All they're going to do is 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 stabilize their balance sheet to a greater degree. And again, you know, none of this would have to happen if interest rates all of a sudden drop back down to two percent on the Fed funds rate, right? But that's not going to happen if if uh, we're going to continue to increase debt everywhere. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the price of gasoline is now soaring again, yeah. right? And you know, the CPI numbers will be out tomorrow. I don't know if that's going to impact the CPI numbers enough to frighten the Fed to increase interest rates, but the Fed is not going to decrease interest rates anytime soon. And home prices are on the rise again, the latest reports show. Yes, yes, all the prices are rising again. So so they're transferring risk stick from the banking sector, which is audited and heavily regulated FDIC insurance to the non-bank sector, unaudited, and they include what, those pension funds, uh, mortgage lenders, private equity folks, fintechs, and so on. If consumer debt keeps mounting and there's trouble in the non-bank sector, would the government just walk away from that? Would it intervene? Do you see, I mean, it seems to me that just increases the risks again in the economy. Well, it does increase the risk. You're exactly correct. It it increases the risks in the economy dramatically. Um, But the point is the government has no obligation to backstop any non-bank company because there's no laws in place to tell them they have to do that. Have to do it for Fannie and Freddie Mac, but that's a uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but that that's that's different. Uh, they got to do it for Farmers Mac. There's a whole bunch of agencies which are quasi public, quasi public, uh, private uh, that they have to stand behind. But no, they don't have to stand behind a Bradford Equity Fund. They don't have to stand stand behind a, a pension fund. They don't have to stand behind any of the places where these loans are going to go. And therefore, it will then be up to Congress if Congress wants to pass a law, which would be another stimulus bill to put money in the hands of the American public, you know, to to, to ride through whatever the recession might be. Sorry, Dick, if you, if you had to place a bet, you know, with keeping in mind that they didn't have to rescue the Silicon Valley depositors that had over $250,000, they didn't have to rescue you know, the first Republic depositors that had over $250,000, they, you know, going back to 2008, they didn't really have to rescue, you know, the insurance companies. They didn't have to rescue a lot of the 
non-financial service firms that they rescued, if you had to place a bet and if the crisis comes, will they actually step up and rescue a non-financial firm? Is this just an off-balance sheet risk that we're kind of ignoring the same way we ignore the Social Security Trust Fund? Yeah, no, if I had to put my money on it, I'd say that they will pass a big stimulus bill similar to what they did uh, in the in the beginning of the pandemic to put money out into the economy. Now, you know, and again, that fits into the theory that, that you've been pushing, which essentially is that the Fed would then fund that, which would allow them to, you know, they think control interest rates. Uh, but but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the disarray will be such that uh, the Fed, the federal government probably will pass some type of stimulus bill. But yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say my thing is a theory. I think it's more of like I try to do the you know back of the envelope math and you say, okay, revenues are X, um, expenditure is 2X, and they're not going to cut expenditure and they're not going to raise revenues. So the only outcome is the Fed's going to have to print money. It just seems to me like the end of a mathematical equation unless something changes with the Congress and president. Well, for the last 70, 50, 70 years, that's exactly what they've done. All right. So the question is, can they do it one more time? Um, or 10 more times. Or 10 more times. You're right. You're right. Uh, but the point is, that's always the way they did it. And if they can do it again, uh, then God love them, because it means that we'll, uh, you know, avoid, you know, something even more draconian. But the only thing that they're doing with this change in the banking regulations is they don't have to do it. Uh, in other words, they, they you know, they, they're going to have to get those right-wing Republicans to say, okay, do it, right? Which I think they will do. But the point is, they don't have to do it. That's what that's what they're striving to do. We're not going to rescue anyone that we don't have to rescue. Yeah. Yeah, because you do have a note in your report, um, the solution is not to create new rules, the solution is to implement the existing regulations. I have that correct? Yeah, well, because who created this banking crisis in the first place? It was the government. The banks this time did not do anything wrong that created this crisis. The uh, government raised the interest rates because the Federal Reserve is the government. They raised the interest rates, which destroyed the value of all these financial assets. The government had regulators in all of these banks. They saw day by day what was happening to the uh, the value of the assets in those banks, and they decided to do nothing, which is exactly what they did in 2006, 7, and 8. They did nothing. So, you know, if the government had reduced the speed with which it increased interest rates, this this would have given the banks a chance to get out of the way. If the regulators said, you know, stop making loans, start increasing your hedging, you know, put yourself in a position where you have liquidity, this thing wouldn't have happened. So, you know, I, I don't blame the banks at all for this crisis. It's it's 100% government made, government created, government, you know, monitored. It's the government that did it, right? Now the government is saying, oh, well, you know, we need 1,087 pages of uh, regulations to solve the problem that the banks have got too much risk. Who put the risk? They did. I would say if you just took one giant step back and just like ignored all the details and, and, you know, you're just kind of an average Joe on the street, your lesson from 2008 and from Dodd-Frank was, hey, man, you got to get too big to fail. You've got to get systematically important. If you're going to, you know, become a high flyer because playing it safe means that the government will abandon you at, at, at at the first chance. And to me, it seems like the, the lesson learned from 2008 and the message sent from Dodd-Frank was the government will rescue you as long as you are risky enough. Well, I mean, there was no reason for them to rescue the Silicon Valley Bank. 
they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to, but I mean, the, 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 the timing, the timing was terrible because everyone had just moved their money, not everyone, but all the small Silicon Valley businesses had just moved their money into those. A lot of them moved their payroll money in and payroll was being processed on Monday and the bank failed on Friday. And so you were going to wake up with Monday morning with a lot of companies not able to pay their employees. And it was, you know, they thought it was going to be a, a disaster that could spread rapidly. Yeah, but you see, that's that, that my my point is there's no such thing as too big to fail. So right now, it's everything's too big to fail. Yeah, you're right. If, uh, and therefore, that, that, that was the lesson learned from Dodd Frank. Is what I'm saying is make yourself yeah. important. The, the other thing between 2008 and today, one of the differences, I, I there was technology back then, 24/7 banking to some degree, but not the way we have it yeah, now. But changed a bit. But we have social media playing an active role and information getting back and forth. You spoke about this in a past episode, Dick. You you were skeptical of some of the twi Twitter storms and postings on Twitter. Or it's called X now. Um, so that did play some kind of an active role in stirring up fear. Let's get our money out of Silicon Valley. Um, people were sharing messages, and they weren't very positive messages. Yeah, well, again, you know, as we said, as we said back in that period, that was illegal. In other words, there was a law passed in 1876, which basically said you cannot precipitate a bank run. And, you know, what was happening on Twitter, um, you know, was they precipitated a bank run. So they did exactly what the law said you couldn't do. I mean, we got yeah. all these laws, rules, regulations, et cetera. Nobody cares about any of them. You know, none of the people in power seem to want to regulate anything, uh, you know, the way they set up the laws for. They, they seem to set up the laws, you know, as a public relations effort to make the public think that they're doing something to protect them. And, and then, you know, when it comes time to regulate, they don't do it. And by the way, since I don't believe in big government, I'm very happy that they don't do it in a lot of cases because I think government's too big, too strong, too powerful and needs to get out of the way. If you don't love big government, you should avoid the CBO reports. <laughs> well, it's got to be a big government that, that writes a report with over 1,000 pages. I mean, they say the sign of intelligence is explaining something simply. Give us five pages, maybe. Well, yeah. Well, see, that's the point. You know, you, you're exactly right. You know, they, they, they're going through all of I, – I, the way I read it is I look, I look at issues in the report, and I read the information related to those issues. But there's no way in hell. Given, particularly given my age, I mean, I, I can't read 1,087 pages because the time will run out on me. <laughs> so, so the point is, <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole damn thing. But the point is that um, they used all those pages to create the illusion that there was a necessity for doing something now because there was a true crisis in place driven by the, 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 the lack of safety in the banking system. Uh, and, you know, this guy Shu's comment, which you started out with, you know, the, the the acting controller of the currency, he said the financial system is safer. No, the banking system is safer. The financial system is is at much greater risk. Think of where interest rates are going to go if the companies lending you the money don't have FDIC insurance lowering their cost of funding. Their cost of funding is going to go way up. And therefore, they're going to lend you at a much higher rate. And therefore, that's going to have a negative impact on the economy. Again, these regulations are set up by a bunch of people who see the train coming at them and are trying to get out of the way. They're not thinking about the economy. They're not thinking about the consumer. They're not thinking about anything, but I got to get out of the way of that train. 
because I'm going to get run over if three or four more banks go under. Dick and Matt, the Fed meets next week uh, on September 19th. Any sense either of you, will it pause um, on interest rates? Uh, traders are pricing in a greater than 90% chance rates will stay unchanged. I think the CPI number tomorrow is going to have a great deal to do with uh, answering that question. If uh, the price of oil or gasoline and housing and rents uh, you know, have shot up in the CPI, then I think that the, the 90% is going to drop down to 50% pretty damn quick. But the point is, um, I think we, we need to see that number before knowing whether the Fed is going to pause or not. Assuming that the CPI number comes in somewhere around three and a quarter percent, a little bit above, a little bit below, then yeah, they'll pause. Assuming the CPI number comes in higher than that, that then all bets are off. They could they could raise rates again. Completely agree. I think it all depends on tomorrow. This is just a, you know an outsider's view. I think if the economy hits the fan next year and we do have a really deep recession, just as an ordinary consumer, I could see push on to lower interest rates, stimulus checks coming left, right and center, student loans um, being stalled, everything just for the incumbents to be reelected. I mean, well, in Janet, part, political hardball, I call that. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Janet Yellen yesterday, which is the reason that the market went up yesterday, uh, Janet Yellen get up and said that, uh, you know, she believed that uh, we were going to have a soft landing. Now, whether she believes that or not, I have no idea. But I do believe that, you know, the, the Democrats have got to start putting out, you know, a lot of public relations statements like that to indicate that when we come into that election next November, uh, we did a great job. The economy's in great shape and, you know, vote Democratic, right? That's what they're doing. So I would expect that all of the statements coming out of government from now on to the election are going to be things are good. Things are good. Don't worry. You know, we're moving in the right direction. Soft landing, good recovery after that. And it's all because of what we did, right? That's what presidents do. And I don't see any reason why this one won't do what everybody else did. And yep. it should be emphasized, presidents on both sides of the island, both parties. Yeah, 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 no, no, that's what they do. They want to get reelected, and they know they're not going to get reelected if they say, oh, my God, you have no idea what's going to happen in the next six months to this economy. So, you know, protect yourself. They, they can't say that. They got to say what Janet Yellen said, and, and they're going to keep saying it. The Secretary of Commerce is going to say it. The Secretary of Labor is going to say it. You know, the Secretary... Uh, Defense doesn't have to say it, but the point is, you know, they're going to keep coming out with statements which are more and more positive as, as we get deeper and deeper into 2024. Dick Odeon Capital Group compiles numbers for the money supply, which is uh, different from the numbers the Federal Reserve Board does. Um, I'm bringing it up because it's getting a lot of attention and the numbers are worth studying and it's called the Audion Capital Group Money Supply. Um, your metric includes uh, depository institution deposits, whereas the Fed uses deposits under 100,000, which is kind of 
really interesting and there's an explanation for that and and you also use other measures of of money now here's here's a stat that uh, the audion revised m3 came up with money supply did not start to decline in america until the second quarter of this year whereas the federal reserve said it declined uh, in late 2022 i mean these are stark differences to having a handle on the money supply I presume helps investors, it helps economists, it helps us understand where the economy is going and how to make decisions. It does. And the reason that we came up with this, uh, you know, revised uh, Odeon uh, money supply number is because the the Federal Reserve number is just totally inadequate. Um, To give you some of the differences, the government only takes, or the Federal Reserve only counts in the money supply money in banks which are under $100,000. What we did was we put all the money in it. The government, you know, doesn't count open market paper, which the banks issue. We say, you know, we put that back in because that's the way it was done 20, 30 years ago, and that's the way it should be done at the present time. You know, the government doesn't account any institutional, uh, any money in a uh, money market fund, which is an institutional fund as opposed to a retail fund we put the institutional money back in and and you know we did a couple of other things also related to the federal reserve we put the vault cash in the federal reserve back a few other things but but the point is that the reason we did it is because when interest rates went up money left the banking system and went into these areas that the government doesn't count and then the government started saying that the money supply is going down you know, because of their economic uh, fiscal policies, when in fact, you know, it wasn't going down at all. It was still rising. It was just that they weren't counting it where it was rising. So we felt that there was a definite need to show that there, there, there wasn't any decrease in money supply, which is why the market kept strong, which is why the economy kept strong. But in the second quarter of, of this year, our money supply figure finally started to show a decline, but the decline is is very, very small, like one-tenth of one percent, whereas the government has got money supply down 2.8%. The government is is just screwing around with those numbers the way it does with every other number, and essentially it is giving bad information to the marketplace, which we're hoping to correct. And, and, and just on the hundred, you've explained it before, but it sounded like a methodology error on behalf of the Fed. Um, in other words, they came up with crafting the money supply um, at, at a time of low interest rates. Uh, they didn't anticipate this rapid rise in interest rates we have today and money flowing from accounts under 100,000 to accounts offering better, more attractive yields. Um for those folks who had previously the money held in accounts under 100,000. Yeah, well, they—they, they, I think, I think you're right about the fact that they probably were very surprised to find that so much money would leave the banking system in, in, in you know, seeking uh, returns on money greater than a hundred thousand. Then the, the lousy, I mean, I mean, Jamie Dimon may talk about drunken sailors, but his bank is paying, you know, two tenths of one percent for deposits, right? So, so the net effect is that because of the way they count money, they completely missed the whole movement of money into other sectors of the financial system where the money was still being put to use. Their assumption was, well, if it leaves the banking system, then it's not being put to use. Well, they're wrong. 
you know, it is put to use and it has been put to use and we see the effect of it in terms of the GDP numbers, inflation numbers, the spending numbers, that it was being put to use. Again, I can't tell you what the rationale is of the government saying that money, uh, $100,000 in a bank account, if you move it into an institutional money market fund, it's not, it doesn't exist anymore. 50, you know, 99000 exists in the bank account. If it goes to 101000 it doesn't exist anymore. What the logic is behind that, I'll, I'll never fathom. China and Russia skipped a G20 summit in New Delhi. Um, what do you read into that? Uh, I mean, I guess there's been different opinions on it that Putin would have faced condemnation from the big powers, France, US, UK, etc. for Ukraine. And see, of course, it was his first time missing the G20 summit since he came to power 10 years ago. So their absence was pretty notable. Well, if Putin shows up there, he'll be arrested. And he'll, <laughs> it's, it's a literal truth. He'll be arrested and he'll be put in jail in The Hague, you know, because he's been accused of war crimes and he's, uh, there's a warrant for his arrest if he steps outside of any country that's willing to protect him. And therefore, you know, he can't, he can't go there. He's no choice. He can't go there. Xi Jinping can go there. But um, I think that, you know, what, what they're trying to show the G20 is that we don't need you. We don't need to do business with you because... We're developing our own, if you will, uh, ecosystem. And, and in that ecosystem, you know, you'll use our money. We'll trade amongst each other. We'll do business and we don't need you guys. That's what is a little bit scary to me. I, I just want to point out China and, and Russia did not skip the G20. Just the presidents themselves didn't go. They sent I, delegations. No, correct. Like, they, 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 sent reps. they sent reps to it. Yeah. I know they did, but they, they, these leaders, I do. You're sure, right. Sure, but they I mean, it would, it, would be, it. it would be much more significant if they were saying, hey, we're protesting. We're not even going and we're not going to participate. That that would be dramatically worse than just the president themselves not showing up. Yeah, no, you, you are correct. Um, on that, Dick, Putin has traveled outside Russia. Yes, his, his travel itinerary is circumscribed, but... Uh, you're saying he would have been. I, I don't know. That to me. Um, he has not traveled to a non, if you will, a, he has not traveled to a country which is not, uh, if you will, which is outside I, the Russia, uh, China. You know, he didn't go to the thing in India, you know, because he was worried about being arrested in India. I mean, he, he can't, he's not going to risk, he's not going to risk leaving. You know, he'll go to North Korea, he'll go to China, he'll go to Iran. But he's not going to go anywhere else. Well, I think I think the other theory on C skipping um, the G20 was he has this some kind of a border dispute with India, so maybe he was trying to snub the PM Modi. Yeah, no, there, there's this there, there is a conflict which obviously the United States would love to see you know flare up, and it's it goes back you know decades. It's not something that uh, just happened. But China, China put out a map. You know, which you know, inflation inflated the the, the tension here, uh, in which they showed you know what is China territory, and as part of that map, they actually put a Russian island, in, you know, an island that the Russians have. The Russians uh, objected to it, but as part of that map, they're claiming big parts of the Him Himalaya mountains, which India claims is theirs. And there has been, you know, conflict, uh, you know, and deaths, you know, between, uh, and there was a war a few years ago, I don't know, 
I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a war. They have skirmishes every now and then. It's called the line of actual control, and it changes based on the snowfall and where the rivers go. And then the, the soldiers line up on either side, and every now and then they exchange gunfire. But this has been going on for decades. And every now and then it becomes a bigger issue, and sometimes it's a smaller issue. And, you know, they're making a point this time. And it seemed, it seemed like, to me, China's absence or Xi Jinping's absence was personal to Modi, not mm. reflective of his view of the G20. Because he actually showed up at the BRICS summit, which wasn't in India, where both Modi and Xi Jinping were there. We're almost out of time, but Dick, you had a note you sent me, Africa. Um, there's this report out that Russia indeed does exert, um, it's probably stating the obvious, but maybe we have more information on it, increasing influence in various African nations seems to be re-engaging those diplomatic ties it severed after the Soviet Union dissolved. I mean, how do you see it? Because you're looking at Africa even on a macro investment level. That's where the opportunities are. But if we're going to have instability and terrorist groups running riot around Africa and causing uprisings, um, I, I would worry about my investments. Well, that's the point. Well, yeah, that's the way it has been in Africa. But the fact of the matter is that what the Russians and the Chinese see there is tremendous amounts of raw material, an expanding population, uh, economies which are going to be growing fairly rapidly, the opportunity to put uh, naval bases, you know, in different areas around the country, uh, in Equatorial Guinea, which is a tiny, tiny country. Russia may wind up putting a naval base there uh, because they pretty much control that country. In Libya, which is a Mediterranean, uh, if you will, support, uh, you know, Russia is considering putting a naval base there. But what 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 they've done is um, when these countries went from colonial countries to you know supposedly democratic institutions, over time, dictators took control of, of just about every one of them. And as, you know, these dictators need support, you know, the Wagner group in Russia would go to places like the Central Afri- African uh, a country, I forget the, the exact words for it, Chad, Mali, uh, you know, place, Madagascar, you know, they would send their troops there, support the existing dictator, or to support the takeover dictator, and they wind up then being the troops in place to keep the government in place and then they they extract the demands. We want so much gold. We want so much, you know, copper. We want so much, what have you? And and they're getting it, and they're getting it. Uh, and and you know, China is getting it with the Belt and Road Initiative. Africa is where it's at, and and we're not doing what they're doing. Uh, and they are getting. I mean, the French have blown it because what the French did was when the um, colonial powers ended, French said, "Fine, you know, have your own government." But they kept all the troops there. They didn't take their troops out. So the troops were supporting whatever the government was. And effectively, you know, the government was working with France. Now these governments are being very upset about France's position. They're throwing France out. You know, they're bringing in Russia. Uh, it's, it's, it's not good for, for, you know, our peace in the world economy if, if these things keep going in the same direction. And the economists, you know, I've been reading about this stuff for years in, in Foreign Affairs magazine, but, you know, The Economist last week wrote a couple of things about it, and, and The Economist actually laid out specifically which countries were directly under the control of Russia, were under the influence of Russia, 
they did not go into the China uh, situation, but uh, you know uh, the the Keele Institute and Harvard University have done a lot of work uh, in that area. They, they see opportunity there. They're right. They're moving to take control of that opportunity. It is not. A, it, I, I can't ever remember anything on the news in the United States. Yeah. It even mentions Africa. The Economist um, presents a very extensive list of Russia supposedly controls parts of Libya, Sudan, Mali, Central African Republic, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, Congo, Kenya, Zimbabwe, Mag Madagascar, South Africa. I mean, bits and pieces and so on. But uh, while there are opportunities there, there are a lot of problems too, Dick, in, um, in Africa. You have Boko Haram has reportedly carried out assassinations, kidnappings, and acts of violence in Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad, and Niger. And we saw the Russian flag being flown during the Niger, Niger coup. So it's just amazing. We really don't get that coverage in the United States, or we don't put on the right channels. We're just not interested. Yeah. If you listen to the BBC, uh, which I also like to listen to because it has this international news, the BBC does cover this stuff. Uh, but the British Broadcasting Company does cover this stuff, and they they have two different channels in the United States: BBC America and then BBC Regular. So, so does Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera has really good African coverage. If you're mm. if you're really interested, yeah, it's good to it's switch the dials and read it both sides. Dick and Matt, a great, uh, interesting conversation. We'll be back next week. We'll know. Uh, we'll be able to discuss where maybe interest rates are headed. We'll, we'll have the inflation numbers and a lot more. And until then, and episode 87, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.